0: We've been talking about um, uh, with, um, with the kingdom, seeing the kingdom series, how to see God everywhere, because that's what God wants you to have. He, he wants you to give you the supernatural power of seeing him everywhere, how to hear him in every conversation. But there comes a point at which you turn and you say, well, God, I want to see you everywhere, but what did you make me for? And how can you equip me for the mission you had in mind when you knit me together in my mother's womb? And so that's this series. That's what we're going through right now. And we've talked about the gospel, and we've talked about the Holy Spirit, and we talked about the scriptures, uh, and now we're going to talk about the church. Only that's not something that just I can do. As you'll hear, it's a a little broader thing. So there has to be at least two of us, one old guy and one young guy, Uh, because this is a generational thing. And first you'll hear from the young guy and then the old guy will come
1: tottering back, all right? (laughs) Thank you, Pastor Joel. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. Hey, would you turn open to Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22? And let me begin with the reading of God's word. Open up the app on your phone or it's in the worship guide as well. Let me read this for us. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to look at a couple things with you. As Pastor Joel said, we're looking at the fact that God has equipped us with an amazing thing, and that amazing thing is the church. And to put it simply, what that means for you and for me is that God has equipped us with his presence. That's what it means because the ultimate purpose of the church is the presence of God and to make his presence known. And so I'm going to talk about really two things, two points, and the first point I'm going to look at is the story of God's presence. We're going to trace that out briefly. And then the second point is this that the church is God's presence. And so let's jump in with this first point that that what the story of God's presence. This passage in Ephesians 2 is one of the most dense passages on the church. It's powerful. And the Apostle Paul, when he wrote it, was bringing in one of the main storylines, the theme of Scripture. He's bringing it all into this passage, into these few verses. And you can see this because what he says is that you, that, that I am, that all of us are being joined together to become a holy temple in the Lord. That word temple isn't something that we use a whole lot. I don't often say that in my daily life. You probably don't either. But for Paul, it was a very, very specific word. And there's a reason he used that word. Because temple, that language actually brought Paul and it brings us all the way back to the very beginning of scripture. It brings us back to the Garden of Eden because Eden is the first temple. You see, the way the ancients understood the world, the way they understood a temple is that a temple is where heaven and earth it's where it met, it's where God dwells. And so as the Jewish people would read those opening pages of Genesis, what they would see there, what we see there, is that God is, his presence is there, he is dwelling in the midst of Adam and Eve. And to put it another way, Adam and Eve are enjoying the perfect presence of God. That's what we see on those first few pages of scripture. And as I've been looking through this this past week, There is such incredible imagery. What you see in Genesis is there's this river that is flowing through the Garden of Eden. And this river is this picture of God's presence. It's a picture of the fountain of life. And Adam and Eve, they are living in God's presence. Not only are they living in his presence, but it is his presence that gives to them life. It gives to them the light in their eyes. It brings to them sustenance. And what that tells us as we look at that is that it's in the presence of God that all of our longings for relationships, all of our longings for significance and satisfaction are met in the presence of God. And what's so great about this passage and the way that it lays out in Genesis is that the river flows through Eden, but then it breaks off into four different rivers because God's plan from the very beginning was that his presence wouldn't just stay in the Garden of Eden, but his presence would go into all of the world, all of the nations. That was God's purpose. That was what he wanted to do. And as, you're, as I'm talking about this, you may be thinking about the idea of, well, wait a minute, isn't God's presence everywhere? Isn't God everywhere? Yes, he is. God is omnipresent. That's what theologians say. Scripture says, where can I go from your spirit? And so in a sense, God is everywhere. He's in every place. But there's something special going on here in the Garden of Eden. God is with Adam and Eve in a special and in a peculiar and in a unique way. What they have with God is they have a relational presence. It's sometimes what scripture calls his glory. It is his active and visible presence. There is a Hebrew word in the scripture for presence. And the word that is used often for presence is panim or panim. And that actually means face. That's what it means. That word presence means face. And so what that tells us is that Adam and Eve have the face of God. This is radical. God is everywhere, but Adam and Eve have God in a very specific way. They're encountering him and enjoying him in a very specific way. And let me put it this way, maybe to help illustrate this a little bit. I don't know if you do this, but sometimes as I'm on my phone and I'm looking at my social media, Facebook, Instagram, and I come across somebody, maybe I don't know them well, an acquaintance, and they're traveling and they're heading to the Bahamas. And so I see those plane flight pictures. I see the beach pictures. I see those dinner out pictures. I see the sunset pictures about day five. And I'm getting a little jealous at this point, but I'm living vicariously through that. And it's almost as if I'm right there with them because they have shared everything on their vacation and it's like I'm there. Well, when they come back into town and I run into them, whether it's here, whether it's out at the grocery store, I see them and um, I'll say hello. But then I'll say, man, those beaches were fantastic. And it freaks them out a little bit because they realize I was Facebook stalking. And in that moment, they kind of take it, take it in and then, but then we talk about their vacation a little bit and they tell me all about their vacation, how those meals were fantastic and they talk about the beaches. And I realized it was like I was there, but I wasn't really there. I didn't really feel the sand underneath my feet. I didn't really feel the coolness coming off the ocean when the sun set. I didn't really taste the food at the dinner table and I didn't really look into their eyes and into their face at that dinner table. Adam and Eve had something incredible with God. They had the face of God, they had his enjoyment, his delight, and in a word they had God's love. That's what we see in that kind of presence. That specific presence, that relational presence was supposed to fill the entire world. It was supposed to move out from Eden into the nations, but we know what happened. We know the story. Something happened and Adam and Eve didn't believe God. They didn't really think God wanted what was best for them. And they decided to do things their own way. They decided not to trust him, but they decided to trust themselves. And what happened in their disobedience is sin entered the world and with sin came loneliness. And with loneliness came fractured relationships and distrust and dissatisfaction and that feeling and that sense of insignificance. In a word, what Adam and Eve experienced was exile. They were exiled from God's presence. And this is something whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe the Bible or not, this is something that we've all encountered in our lives from one time or another. There was a very famous 20th century um, philosopher, uh, German philosopher named Martin Heidegger. And he said, there's something that characterizes all of us. And it's a really great German word. It's Unheimlichkeit. It'll make you smile if you say it, Unheimlichkeit. And what that German word means, literally it means uncanniness or eeriness. But what Heidegger is getting at is that there's something within us that characterizes all of us that we feel away from home. We feel alienated. We feel radically out of place and profoundly lonely. It's the 21st century, very famous philosopher, Taylor Swift, who puts it another way. Taylor Swift said the basis for her writing songs was this deep sense of loneliness. She was in middle school and she had this sense of loneliness feeling um, like an outcast. And one of her first songs, and some of you may know it, um, and that's okay, it's called uh, The Outside. And this is what Taylor Swift wrote in one of her first songs. She said, how can I ever try to be better? Nobody ever lets me in. I can still see you. This ain't the best view on the outside looking in. What we see in Heidecker and in Taylor Swift is it doesn't matter our age, whether you're in middle school or a young adult, whether you're middle aged, whether you're retired, it doesn't matter. We all have this sense of exile. We all have this sense of feeling disconnected, especially in a culture that is so connected through technology. All that means, as one writer puts, is it just means that we are alone together and we get this sense of exile. J.R.R. Tolkien, writer of The Lord of the Rings, sums it up well. This is how he puts it. He says, we all long for Eden and we are constantly glimpsing it, our whole nature at its best and least corrupted. Its gentlest and most humane is still soaked with a sense of exile. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, that presence with God stopped. But God had a plan. God wanted to bring his presence, that relational presence into all of the world. And the story of scripture traces that. And we see his presence in Eden, but then we see it in a tabernacle. It's a tiny tent in a tiny nation. And then we see his presence in the Holy of Holies. It's a temple in a kingdom. And then all of the prophets in the Old Testament, some of them proclaiming, some of them whispering in their prophecies, and some of them even weeping for the return of God's presence. And what this leads to, it leads to the New Testament. It leads to what John tells us in his gospel. John says that Jesus is the Word. And we know this passage well. We've been looking at this, thinking about this as we've been going through Lent, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The literal translation for that is that the Word became flesh and tabernacled. He's the temple, and we have seen His presence. God was committed to bringing his presence back into the world and Jesus came, Christ came to deal with sin, to deal with alienation, to deal with our exile, to deal with the walls that are between us. He came to deal with all of that so that through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, we might have his face again. We might be able to have his enjoyment, his delight, his love just like Adam and Eve did. But the story doesn't stop there. The story eventually will culminate with this incredible picture we see at the end of the Bible of a new heavens and a new earth completely being filled with this glory, with this presence. But until that day, this is where we come in as the church. God's plan is for you and for me, for us to be his presence. And so that's the story of God's presence. But now what does it look like for us the church to be God's presence in the world? Well, God wants to build something so much greater and grander than we could possibly imagine, something so much bigger than ourselves. Let me turn back to this passage in Ephesians. It's in verse 19 that Paul puts it like this. He says, "So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer in exile." But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul ratchets up this metaphor, these metaphors, three metaphors, in fact. He first says, we're citizens. We're citizens in a kingdom. That's huge. That changes your status. But then he says, we are members in a household. We're sons and daughters in the family of God. That's very significant but then he brings it up to a higher point and he says, you and I are building blocks or what Peter says, we're living stones. When you hear that, you're thinking, how is that more intimate than those other ones? Because each of those lead to greater intimacy in the metaphor that Paul is using. Watch what he does here in verse 20 and 21. Paul says, we're being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that's the word of God. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Why is a building block, a living stone, a rock that's put in a temple, why is that more intimate than being a citizen in a kingdom or a member in a family? Well, the imagery is powerful because back then those stones were put together without cement and mortar. And so those stones actually had to be chiseled. Every imperfection had to be cut away. And those imperfections were cut away in such a way that those stones could be fit together perfectly. So there wasn't any space between them. They were right next to each other. And they were chiseled so perfectly that there they stood together. They sat and they built this structure, one on top of another. And they were completely fitted with each other. And so how? The question is, how does God fit us together to be his temple, to be his presence in the world? Well, God does the same thing with us. God chisels away our imperfections, and sometimes it's a very painful process, but God chisels away our pride. God chisels away through the power of his grace and his mercy. He chisels our pride and our conceit, our cynicism. He chisels away our lust, our jealousy, our rage, and he fits us together. And there's no space between us. And when that happens, what we see is the presence of God here. It breaks into this world. We become his temple. And what we see and what the world sees is love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. It is the fruit of the Spirit. We also see forgiveness and reconciliation. We become people who are quick to apologize. And it's there, it's being the church, being fitted together that we encounter the presence of God and all of our longings for relationship, for significance and satisfaction are met. As we are fitted together, well let's not miss the last part of this scripture and perhaps one of the most important parts of the scripture. What Paul tells us is that Christ himself is the cornerstone. We just sung about this and I know sometimes when we sing about uh, something or when a term is very familiar it sometimes loses the impact but when Paul used this word it was evocative. He was calling to mind great structures that the people would have known, that the church at Ephesus would have known because the cornerstone was the pinnacle of ancient building, ancient construction. And some archeologists have said that they have found and unearthed some of these cornerstones and they were up to 40 feet. These were massive, massive stones, huge stones. And they were the focal point of the building. Not only were they the focal point, but they brought structural integrity to the entire building. And so if things weren't lined up with the cornerstone, things would begin to fall apart and crumble And so it was imperative that they were lined up with the cornerstone. Let me uh, put it like this. I have a a few sons and their favorite toy is Legos. They love Legos. And a couple years ago, one of my sons got, um, I love this, he got the Millennium Falcon, the Lego Millennium Falcon. There it is in all of its glory. I may have been just as excited as he was. But he got that and it has over 1300 pieces. And in those pieces, I don't know if you've ever looked at Lego instructions before, but there aren't any words. All that the Lego instructions give you are just pictures. And so this is step five. And as you look at that, it goes, it looks okay, I can do this, but there aren't any words. And so you need to look real carefully because then it turns into this. You need to make sure that every piece is absolutely put together the way it's supposed to be. And then it goes to this, it gets more complicated. And here's what happens, and it has happened more times than I care to tell you. When you get to, that's step 99, that's about four hours later, just so you know. But when you get to step 99 and you're putting it together and suddenly what you realize is shoot, this is not fitting together. Things are not working, this this, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And you're trying to fit it together, but in that moment, you have two options. The first option is, I'm gonna make it work. Uh, Yeah, exactly, oh no. I'm gonna make it work. My son will never know the difference. And I'll fit it together, and then, you know, I'll hand it over to him. I mean, he's building it with me, building it with me. And, um, And I'll hand it over to him. But here's what happens, if I do that, if I force it, if I try to make it work, what I risk is, when he's playing with the Millennium Falcon, What I risk is it's gonna fall apart and Han Solo will not rescue Princess Leia. It's not gonna happen. Or the option two is this. I take it apart and I go back to all the other steps and I see where I made the mistake and I fix it and then I rebuild it and I put it back together again. Do you see the picture here? This is what happens to us if we don't line ourselves with Christ, that things begin to fall apart. The structural integrity of our community will fall apart, and our relationships will get rocky when we don't line ourselves with Christ, and what we encounter is not the presence of God, but what we encounter is the exile, the alienation, and Heimlichite. That's what we experience rather than the presence of God. And when we encounter that exile, it leads to being disillusioned. And how many people have we talked to who are disillusioned with the church? We've been disillusioned with the church from time to time. But I think that's a gift. We live in a time where it's a gift because it's in that disillusionment, if we acknowledge it, I think Christ draws us back to himself. He fits us together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who knew a lot about disillusionment, he was a pastor during Nazi Germany, and this is what he wrote in his incredible book, Life Together. He said, only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Only God knows the real state of our fellowship." What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. Together, we realign ourselves with Jesus by the power of his grace and his mercy. We align ourselves together, and when we do that, let's watch what happens. God's faithful presence will be brought into the world through you, and in you and through us, we will see God's presence in a radical way, I believe, because that's what the church is for. In just a moment, Pastor Joel's going to bring an application. But before he does, my friend Hannah is going to sing a song over us. And as she sings this over us, I want to invite you to make this your prayer. Might this be our prayer? Might God fit us together as a temple, as his presence. And this is the way Paul ends this passage. He says this, in him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit.
0: Pastor Pete did an excellent job of exegeting that scripture, giving you the theological and, and uh, biblical truth of what that, picture, uh, that said. Now I'm going to get all personal with you, okay? Because the church is about people, and, and I want you to be more and more involved, and I want the church to be more and more integrated into your everyday life. And so uh, let, me, let me start by saying, when I say more and more involved, I mean more and more involved. I also realize there are some of you that are taking a temporary anonymity for a good reason. You know, one of the things about a big church is people come because they can just kind of blend in for a while. Because some of you have been wounded, and some of you have been hurt, and you just need a little, you just need a little time to heal. I, I get that. There are, t- there are times when uh, temporary anonymity is advisable, and tell me to tell you a story. <clears throat> this church uh, one, a guy was ushering. Um, he'd been an usher for years, and 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 this little old lady comes up, and and uh, he didn't recognize her, and visit her, and so he goes right up to her and says, <clears throat> "Ma'am, welcome to our church. We're so glad you're 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 here." And she said, "Well, thank you." And she he said, "Where would you like to sit?" He she said, first row." He said, "Ma'am, I I." I I appreciate that. I appreciate your spirit, but you probably don't want to go the first stroke. Let me tell you something about our pastor. He's a wonderful man, but he's really boring. This little old lady just raised herself up. She said, do you know who I am? And he said, no, ma'am. I am your pastor's mother. <laughs> he said, do you know who I am? She said, no. He said, good. <laughs> THERE ARE TIMES WHEN TEMPORARY ANONYMITY IS ADVISABLE, BUT IT HAS TO BE TEMPORARY, AND I TELL YOU WHY. BECAUSE WHAT GOD MADE YOU FOR REQUIRES THE CHURCH. HE MADE IT THAT WAY. YOU NEED US, AND WE NEED YOU, BECAUSE THIS IS A TOGETHER THING. You know, we have had, we've been under a false impression about the church, and I I just want to give you, I'm going to give you a quiz. Can I give you a quiz? I I, I won't embarrass you. You don't have to vote if you don't want to. Um, And this is a difficult quiz, but I want you to pick out the theologically false statement, okay? Okay, here's the quiz. Which one of these is the theologically false statement? A, I can follow Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. B, I am the church wherever I am. C, I am not likely to sustain my growth in Christ without other Christians in my everyday life. Or D, I am sent into the world by Christ as his ambassador. All right, now one of those is theologically false. For those of you who wanna play, now this is, there's no shame in this because these are really, this is really a difficult quiz. <clears throat> How many of you think the theologically false statement is A? Okay, how many of you think the theologically false statement is B? Okay, a few more. How, ma- how many of you think the theologically false statement is C? All right, a few more. How many of you think the theologically false statement is D? Okay, very few, okay. It was B, and let me tell you why. See, we, were, we grew up, those of us who grew up in the church, grew up with this little ditty, I am the church. You are the church, we are the church together. Can I tell you the first two lines of that statement are false. I'm not the church. You're not the church as an individual. We are only the church together. Jesus said where two or three of you are gathered, there I am in their midst. We are Christians sent by Christ. We are filled by the Holy Spirit we're not the church. The church is only us together. That's why it starts out with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. It says, so, longer, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. That's, that's not a singular you. That's a plural you. That's a what? Y'all. That's a all y'all. That's a, that's a southern you. All right? That's a y'all. Because that's how the church is. We're only the church together. Did you realize, Yeah, I, I read this the other day, I went, huh. Let me see if you, it does the same thing to you. An airplane is made up of 100% non-flyable parts. Think about that for a minute. Every part of an airplane doesn't fly. It only flies when it's together. The church is like that. He made us, of course, to have an individual influence in the world, but there's another part that he means for us to do together, and we can only do it if we're together. And that's why I want to call us into further involvement in the church in its many forms. But further involvement in the church. That's why I want to, you know, we, we made this on, online because we, we, we have groups all over the world and we want to be together. Even when we can't be geographically all together, we, we still want to be together. But, but let, me just, let me just say something rough to those of you who worship individually online. It's okay occasionally, but there are so many of you in Central Florida that could drive to the church and you just don't? Could I just say we need you and you need us because there is an experience you have here you can't have at home in your jammies. And it's okay if you're sick and you, or you're on the road or you're, I do this, I, I worship with you when, I'm, when I can't be here physically. But there is something to physical gathering. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, this is what it says. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You know, you're, you're, this is going to be something that you do when you're around other people. You're, you're encouraged, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. You can't, you can't forsake this. We need to be together, encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. You know, when they were putting the, the, the video for this together, Chad did this particular video, and, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and, I, and I watched it, and there were all of these folks, and he said, kind of tell me your experience of the church. Well, now, before I even go there, I, I know some of you are here in spite of your experience past experience of the church, some of you have been, some of you have been hurt by the church, and some of you online, are not here because you've been hurt by the church. You don't want to be hurt by the church again. I totally get that. I totally do. Give us another chance, will you? Give us another chance. I, 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 I know it's really easy to be cynical about the church. It really is. It's really easy to say bad stuff about the church. It's even popular. But could I just caution you on this? Even if your experiences were real, Don't talk bad about the church. Jesus doesn't like that. Let me ask you something. If you went to a wedding, would you go up to the groom who was about to be married and start complaining about his bride? Uh, Seriously, would you say, you know, I got to tell you, she's ugly. (laughs) I got to tell you, I've been with that woman and she just rubbed me the wrong way. Would you do that? Of course you wouldn't. When you talk bad about the church, you understand you're talking about the bride of Christ? He doesn't like that. You're calling his bride ugly. Don't do that. No. Give us a second chance. Because I watched this film, and there's, and there's, you know, there's this woman who, who's going through a rough time, and her family's in the Bahamas, but, but she's here, and she's saying, but my spiritual family, my church family is walking with me. And they're saying, how can I be with you? And can I bring you a meal? And, 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 and I realize I've, I've got family. I'm surrounded by family. There's another mom who is, has a teenager for the first time. And she said, I'll tell you my experience with the church. I need to talk with other parents of other teenagers because I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm scared to death. And she's getting that, that kind of Fellowship and counsel that she needs. And, and there's another young couple just got married and they, they, they're poor like the rest of us were when we got married. They, they don't have a washer and dryer, but somebody in their church crew said, Well, we got to act. We moved into a place that's got a washer and dryer and we got one. Let us just give you ours. And they said, Well, thank you very much. See, practical stuff. There was another girl who had just got back from a, a, a passion conference, of young people from 18 to 25 years old, 50,000 of them that were there for the purpose of stopping human trafficking, sex trafficking among young people. And, 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 and she said, this was the church. She was connected by mission to, see, it's, it's all of these ways that, that we're together. I want all of us to have that experience. But I want to say one more thing about this passage. In the latter verses, verses uh, um, 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 21 and 22, I think it says, there there is an idea that God right now is building his church. He hasn't built his church. He's still building his church. He's still building you. You are not personally... You are not organizationally you are not numerically complete there's still people he wants in this church and 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 and, 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 and just says wants well, to try my church you know that's so but but let me tell you what it says here in in, in, in Ephesians chapter two verses I think it's uh, twenty one and twenty two it says in whom the whole building look at this verb tense being Fitted together. Now, is God chiseling you personally? Yep, just like Pastor Pete said. He's, he's, he's doing some personal work with us. But being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together. I want you to know this about the church. I want you to know that there is a reason that God is fitting us together, and it's not done yet. I want you to know you're not the first stone on the block, and you're not all alone. You're not a vagabond. You may feel like a vagabond, but God wants you to fit with others that have come before you so that you can complete what they began. And God wants you to be fitted with others who will come after you so that they can complete what you began. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. It says, and all of these, talking about people of great faith, the great heroes of the faith, the Moses and Abraham, all of these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. They weren't complete because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They would not be made complete. You understand why I'm with you today? I'll tell you why I'm with you. Because when I was growing up, I had a grandmother who took me to church and loved on me and prayed for me. She prayed me out of a, a lot of bad patterns and a lot of disasters, and I'm not quite ready for her Christianity to be done yet. So I'm here as her representative. I'm here because I grew up in a church that took a young boy in and made him feel important. I used to sit behind Mrs. Price every Sunday, and, and, and she was an old lady dressed in purple. She always wore purple. And she smelled like somebody had dipped her in a vat of perfume. I know what there is about old people and smelling a lot of per- but, but every week she'd turn around and she'd say, Joey, it does me so good that you're here. I'm so glad. It just, she treated me with respect. Dr. Shoemaker, with these long flowing robes and First Methodist used words so big I couldn't understand it, but there was a sense of reverence about this man. I am not ready for that sense of reverence to go away. That sense of reverence still lives in me, still lives in me. When I went to college and I came fully to Christ, there was a a pastor that sat down with me, and I started out as a philosophy manager. And, and, and really against every organized establishment there was. This was the 60s. And I was anti-establishment. And so I began questioning him. You can imagine the questions. And he just answered one question after another, after another. I'm not ready for that kind of patience to be done. That kind of patience needs to live on in my life. In my last church, I'm sorry, in my first church out of seminary, I remember this old elderly African-American band in the choir. His name was Frank. And when he opened his mouth to sing, I'm telling you, the heavens opened up. I'd never heard a voice like this. He was so gifted that when he graduated high school, He was offered a full ride to the Chicago Conservatory of Music. But he had just gotten a job in a gas station. And back then, way, way back then, for a black youth to have a job in a gas station was such a big deal that he never went. He never had that gift developed. And so at 70-some years old, he was still in this little old Methodist church using the gift that God gave him, and to complicate matters even further, there was somebody standing right beside him. We had two guys in that choir, and the guy right beside him, Alvin, was totally tone deaf totally was. He just knew they needed men in the choir, and so they called for volunteers, and Alvin just having a good heart and absolutely no talent and absolutely no knowledge, he was tone deaf. You realize people don't know they're tone deaf when they're tone deaf. That's what it means to be tone deaf. And so he just sang out, never hitting a key, not even the chances of it. And, and so we'd strain really hard to hear Frank and, and try to block out Alvin. But I'm not ready for that kind of giftedness and that kind of good-heartedness to end. I'm here because of them. They live on in me. My church, my last church, there was a group of people that took this young, know nothing minister and gave him confidence that God could use him. That's why I'm here. Their ministry is in me. That's why I'm here. But I'm also here because of people like Pete and Chad and Martha. And Kaylee, the people I'm going to hand this off to, I'm here because of the young people who have influenced my life and still do. I'm here because of Isaac Hunter. I'm not ready to have his influence in this world gone. I'm here because he still lives in me. And I want him to be the future of the church as well as the past. You see how this works? God has us all together here. God has it all together. All together. So here's what I want to do. I want you to stand up. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing our way out of here. But salvation's tide is rising. God is still building his church. He hasn't quit, and he's not going to. And he wants to include you more than you have ever been included because you're important. And this church is important to equip you for what he made you for. So you know the routine before we sing this song. You you know there's going to be a prayer team up here and those of you online, Bill Gary is somewhere on I-10 and he'll pray with you. (laughs) You know? Those of you who want to be more connected right now with the church, go out and find somebody with an orange lanyard. AND THEY'LL GET YOU CONNECTED. BUT LET ME PRAY. GOD, THANK YOU FOR GIVING US A HOME. THANK YOU FOR GIVING US A SPIRITUAL FAMILY. DRAW US IN, APPLY THESE WORDS TO OUR MIND, THAT WE MIGHT NOT GROW SHALLOW. AND TO OUR HEART, WE MIGHT NOT GROW COLD. AND TO OUR FEET, THAT WE MIGHT BE DOERS OF THE WORD AND NOT HEARERS ONLY. AMEN.